Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations. You have found the Internet's finest podcast for music with an extra K at the end. We're going to start this episode off with some trivia. You know more than I know. I'm going to start trivia off tonight with the non-audio round, and this one isn't even going to be about music. Oh, it's going man. to be more Halloween-oriented. Is it? Is it spooky? I can do a voice. <laughs> that it's is spooky. <laughs> that is sort of traditional on our Halloween episode that at some point one of us does a bad Transylvania accent. I think I just knocked it out of the park. Check that box. <laughs> There we go. We're done. We can back off now. <laughs> I'll just get my wolf howl in here, and then we'll be done. We'll be done with the show. <laughs> and that's not a Halloween thing. That's an every <laughs> no, show, no. Right? That's just my usual panting. <laughs> so for this trivia, this is going to be about creature features or shock movies. You remember those Friday and Saturday night horror marathons on local mm-hmm. TV? They put like the, the cheapest the horror movies they could find and had like somebody dressed up like like a vampire hosting it. Yep, exactly. What I'm going to do is I am going to name one of these hosts because they had incredibly great or just really awful names. And I'd like for you to tell me if it is real or fake. Okay. And if it's real, I'll see if I can't come up with a little bit of information about it. Okay. That sounds sounds like a lot of fun. Let's do it. Okay. Number one, Sinister Seymour. <laughs> I'm going to say that's real. That is real. Yep. His real name was Larry Vincent. And <laughs> why, why, why not go with Larry Vincent? That's like the most frightening name I've ever heard. I know, right? He sort of looks like a zombie Mark Twain, but I don't think that was really what he was going for. <laughs> All right, next one, Dr. Mad Blood. That sounds so bad. It's probably true. It is true. Yeah. Yep. He was a horror host character who appeared on Dr. Mad Blood's movie, Dr. <laughs> Mad Blood's Night Visions, and Dr. Mad Blood Presents. His show is a lot better than Professor Peaceful Spittle. How about Sir Cecil Creep? Uh, I'm going to say you made that one up. Oh, it's real. Dang. It is uh, from the 70s, and it was originally in Nashville, but they also had a subsidiary in Iowa, I think, so they showed in Iowa as well. Okay. Let's try Ned the Dead. Ned the Dead? Ned the Dead. That's real. It's real. From Green Bay in the 80s. Ned the Dead from Green Bay in the 80s? Clever, right? For Green Bay, I think it's real clever. Next one, Uncle Ted. Uncle Ted. Uncle Ted. Gosh, that's frightening in its own way. I'm going to say that is real. It's real from Pennsylvania, northeastern Pennsylvania. His name was actually Edwin Lynn Robb, and he wore one of those fez 
caps. Oh, that's like great. See on a, yeah, it's like a Shriner Google. <laughs> I think most Shriners are Googles. <laughs> Except for when they help children. That's that's fantastic. We appreciate our Shriners. Sir Graves Ghastly. Ah, it's a little on the nose. I'm going to say true. It is. It's a Cleveland guy from the 60s. Okay. Mona Lisa. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's fake, but that's really good. That's a real one. Oh, man. How about Coffin Joe? (laughs) Not cough, 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 but Coffin. Yeah, yeah, I gotcha. Um, uh, Fake. It's real. Dang. They've all been real. They've all 100% real. Should have stuck with real. Yeah. What's the over-under on if Joe Biden gets COVID? That would be Trump's nickname for him. (laughs) (laughs) How about um, the cool ghoul? Oh, gosh. I mean, they've all been real so far. But I think you made that one up. It's fake. It's real. Cincinnati from the 70s. Cincinnati guy. He looks really good. He's sort of a, a hippie zombie. That's a good shtick. I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to switch it up. Count Scary. <laughs> I think that's my favorite so far, besides Mona Lisa. Um, Count Scary. That's got to be real. It is from Detroit. Yeah. Dr. Vampire. <laughs> Dr. Vampire. Dr. Vampire. Yeah, I think that's got to be real. That's fake. Oh, man. Dr. Sarcophagi. Oh, I hope that's real. It is real. Isn't that great? Dr. Creep was earlier. Dr. Sarcophagi. He was actually the first African-American horror host. What a great name. Yeah, Sarcophagi. I like that one. And then I'll do one more here. Goulardi. (laughs) (laughs) That's got to be real. It's real. Cleveland. That's probably one of the more... One of the more famous That's a great, yeah, that's another great name. All right, I'm going to go into the audio trivia. This is called Ghost Hunters. Your job is I put a bunch of uh, ghosts from different songs, and you just got to tell me how many you can capture. So just give you a number? Yeah, no. (laughs) There's a bunch of uh, singers singing ghosts. And just tell me the singer of the band, as many as you can pick out. Okay, that sounds fine. All right, here it comes. It's going to come fast. Right. What the hell was that? Did you capture any? Did you get slime, Joe? Do you are you allowed to tell us how many are in there? Eighteen total. Okay, I may have gotten half. Okay, that's a, that's what I would expect. Um, on one listen, that's rough. All right, you ready to go into this week's turntable talk? Yes. Oh. Everybody's talking at me I don't hear a word they're saying Only the echoes of my mind 
Rosemary Dickinson was seven when she encountered her first spirit. Appearing rather suddenly, the kindly old specter had long flowing white hair and a black cassock of a cleric. Rosemary was startled, but not scared, for she had already known that she was likely clairvoyant, as her parents and grandparents before her. The old ghost introduced himself as a composer, and promised to her that he would return to give her music and make her famous. Without any further information, he dissipated into thin air and wouldn't materialize again to fulfill his vow for another 40 years. Ten years after this strange meeting, Rosemary realized that the man who had visited her was the Hungarian composer and piano virtuoso Franz Liszt. Throughout her youth, she would have the rare brush with a phantom guest, but for the most part, her life was exceptionally ordinary. She worked in the local South London post office, was married, had a baby. It wasn't until 1964 that Rosemary Brown's world went all flippy-floppy. Both her mother and husband died suddenly, creating an emotional downward spiral and a financial hardship. On top of this, she was injured at work, leaving her prostrate and housebound. To stave off boredom, she decided to sit at an old second-hand piano the family had acquired years ago. As a child, she spent a couple years taking lessons, but hadn't played since. She laid her fingers on the dusty keys when an odd sensation began to flow through her. Her hands were being directed by someone or something else, as if she'd given up keyboard and mouse control. She played several bars and was left muddle-headed at her own nimble playing and the beauty emanating from the old instrument. Soon least made his presence known and compelled her to start writing down the notes he was communicating through her. He was gifting her his music. Least became a frequent visitor to the Brown household, but he wasn't alone. It seems he'd invited a procession of gentlemen callers to Rosemary, who all also happened to be the world's most preeminent dead composers. She commuted and transcribed works for many of the masters, including Brahms, Bach, Rachmaninoff, Schubert, Grieg, Debussy, Schumann, Stravinsky, and Mozart. They had each conveniently learned English, by the way. Rosemary became quite busy with transcribing, working tirelessly to capture every note that passed through her. Each Kappelmeister had his own way to utilize Rosemary's unique services. Some composers, like Liszt, directed her hands. Others simply pushed them. Schubert scream-sang his new works at her face. Beethoven grumpily grumbled his compositions, while asking her to repeat herself a lot. She amassed hundreds of compositions of dictated works from the decomposing composers. Around the same time, Brown would become involved in the Church of Spiritualism. Despite her limited piano skills, she would play organ at the Balham Spiritualist Church, where people began to take notice of these confoundingly intricate and gorgeous melodies. Upon hearing the origin of the music, the spiritualists were eager to show off the meek homemaker medium who was channeling music from beyond the grave. Her renown grew exponentially. Soon, she would be invited to give performances and talk about her piped-in talents. She appeared on the Johnny Carson show and was the subject of a BBC documentary, in which she discussed the moment she received this stunning work from Liszt called Grubelai, or The Brooding.
she released an album called Musical Seance, with 17 original compositions that, for legal purposes, were claimed to be simply inspired by these famous symphonists. Eventually, not-undead musicians would seek her out for consultations and to have her relay messages to the masters. Her relationships with the departed geniuses went beyond professional. Rosemary clipped coupons with Liszt, watched her stories with a very agitated and melodramatic Chopin. One time in the 80s, John Lennon turned her on like a dead man, transmitting three songs and bestowing upon her messages for the youth, like, Don't use drugs, and... Paul isn't here. Brown had dialogues with Jung and Einstein. She also took up psychic painting at the behest of Vincent van Gogh and Samuel Palmer, completing new works by both. Rosemary Brown's claims have long been questioned and ridiculed by skeptics. While numerous psychological tests demonstrated that she was of sound minds, and painter minds, many believe these works to be cryptonesia, sprung forth from her unconscious, Renderings of slanted interpretations of the greatest masterworks. Some claim she's a huckster, a flimflammer, and an opportunist who found a shtick to monetize her savant-like ability for classical music mimicry. Others claim that her music represents a form of conceptual art by a woman of unprecedented talent, but who is bound by social gender constraints, unable to unveil her natural abilities. Even more sinister is the notion that these works were the manifestation of a demonic possession that granted the poor woman no respite from work, a musical bombardment that allowed her no peace in her lifetime. Almost all agree that there was something genuine in her sincerity and belief in the source of her music. All this leads to the question of what if? What if Rosemary is exactly as she says, a medium? What if there are unseen forces in the creation of this music? What if spirits have found ways to communicate and make further contributions to society? What's the role that living humans play in this dance with the unknown? Are we simply spinning wet clay at night while the Patrick Swayze's of the underworld grind and dry hump their spirits into us? If only. Can we actively participate in paranormal projections through music? Or can music be truly guided and assembled by reaching the supernatural? Rosemary Brown's musical medium Mania came at a pivotal turning point in the perspective on the occult's role in popular culture. Spiritualism, which emphasized a healthy and productive relationship with otherworldly forces, was given way to Satanism, which focused on the dark and destructive nature of the unknown. The psychedelic era embraced both of these dueling concepts, engaging with the occult in a means of changing normal everyday life. Perhaps in a desperate effort to regain control of a topsy-turvy mortal coil that seemed to be slipping further into a chaotic shitstorm. Whereas spiritualism looked at communing with the past, a new era saw dark magic as a means of forward-looking transcendence and detaching yourself from what is earthly and now. Outward practices became personal preferences— and eventually, the spiritual substance and a deference to other planes of existence would be completely replaced by aesthetics and subculture identity politics. The auditory products that are made with an ear for the unknown are fascinating relics. Some believe what they are hearing are examples of mass delusion. Some believe that they are powers that should have never been unearthed. Ooh. Some believe they are misunderstood manifestations of science. Ooh. <laughs> 
Is it the ungodly work of degenerate fiends or feigned evil of unenlightened opportunists? Either way, you'll be left dismayed, disgusted, disturbed, delighted, and full of dread as we venture through darkened hallways of paranormal recordings, satanic priest rituals, spell incantations, occult rock, and pagan folk. So light your black candle, dust off your grimoire, pour some blood in your skull goblet, evoke your antichrist, buff your crystal ball, and sacrifice him if you got him. Today we explore the history of occult sounds. Almost as long as humans have mastered the ability to record the environment around them, they have desired to record the world that is just beyond them. A perfectly logical endeavor, as all recorded music is somewhat supernatural, especially when cocaine and LSD are involved. Recorded sound is, by its very nature, taken from another place, a distant place, and thrust into a moment where it doesn't belong, and couldn't exist without human manipulation. The technology that unlocks these past dimensions surely mustn't stop there. What other realms can be explored? Spiritualism swept through European and American households during the second half of the 19th century, as people were inclined to think that not only were disembodied souls invisibly chillaxing everywhere, but that these unseen presences desperately wanted to spend their eternity answering questions letter by letter on Ouija boards. Furthermore, it is believed that these spirits had some sort of moral and ethical superiority, since they were dead, and could guide us lowly meatbags toward theosophical enlightenment and unique forms of hidden knowledge. The craze is often traced back to the Fox sisters, who began a relationship with an entity called Mr. Splitfoot. Which, I think, was a band we covered on the Zamrock episode. Mr. Splitfoot resided in the walls of their New York house. They would ask it questions, and the spirit would answer with slow, purposeful knocks. News of this odd and scary story of the sister mediums who could commune with the underworld through this rapping traveled far and wide. Soon the Fox sisters became famous and performed all over the country, igniting a fascination with the ability to communicate with the dead. What was something between a mass religious movement and a popular culture obsession soon was afoot. All sorts of supposed human conduits were utilizing any number of channeling practices. Spirit photography, automatic writing, seances, possession dolls, ectoplasm, table tipping, dermography, which is fun, skin writing, and spirit trumpets which is basically like Charlie Brown's parents bitching at him from the bowels of hell. On stages and in parlor rooms, there was an insatiable curiosity for mediumship. Even historical hottie slash beard, Mary Todd Lincoln hosted a trans medium in the Crimson Room of the White House. 
probably to ask the ghost of Thomas Jefferson where he put the real copy of the Constitution. Or maybe where he took his constitutional. <laughs> By the turn of the century, the fervor for spiritualism had not waned at all. Technology provided new modes of interdimensional communication. In particular, the invention of the phonograph as a means for recording sound was a huge advancement. Presence, supernatural or ordinary, could be documented for the first time and spread much farther than previously. The need for perpetuating the validity of spiritualist techniques meant that all sorts of paranormal events were recorded and saved. The wealth of field records are a fascinating look into the practices of the day. Many are absolutely terrifying. Anthropologist Valdemar Bogoros accidentally recorded the earliest known instance of electronic voice phenomenon in 1901. And I loved him in that 70s show. While using a phonograph to capture the spirit-conjuring ceremony of the shaman of an indigenous Siberian tribe, he noticed on the playback that there were strange voices loudly muttering in some language that resembled English and Russian. The recording has been studied over countless times by physicists, and the EVP is still inexplicable. Halfway across the world around the same time comes this recording of a magician singing a night cure for an ailing patient. The sonic equivalent of, take two aspirin and call me when you are in mourning. Perhaps the easiest method of shooting the shit with the folks from the great beyond was using mediumship. Those with the gift can allow their body to become a vessel for communication. Mediums would relinquish consciousness to clear the path for a domineering specter to start pontificating at the audience. Here is a recording from 1933 of trance breathing, which is the preparation for the connection with the dead, and also a recording of a successful mediumship in Germany. Porque é muito alto a rampa aqui no palco, é muito alto. Ah, eu ponho uma, eles para eles subir com uma cadeira pronto. Eu, eu falo com eles. Espera um pouco. Hã? Vamos estudar o caso. Eu muss den Fall jetzt studieren. Hänschen will, dass die Fotografen jetzt hier heraufkommen. E, e se você e o Virgílio com uma das mãos abrirem as cortinas? Seances were more formalized ceremonies that used concentrated groupthink to hail a specific spirit to come hang out at the party. It became fashionable for mediums to hold seances to evoke the souls of dead celebrities. For example, here is the British psychic Leslie Flint channeling historical hottie slash beard, Charlotte Bronte. Hello. I, I don't know, my dear. Uh, Hello. That's impossible. A little louder, darling. Shut up. 
Shalom. Shalom. Your name is Shalom. Yes. You're very welcome, Shalom. You're here with Emily. You're here with Emily. Harry Houdini was distraught after the death of his mother in 1913 and attended seances in an attempt to find closure, but instead became enraged at mediums that he thought were clearly deceiving poor grieving souls. Houdini used his knowledge of stage magic trickery to expose and humiliate as many mediums as he could. As fate would have it, after his untimely death, his wife Bess would hold yearly seances to see if any of the supposed beckoned spirits would know the preordained secret message a living Houdini set up to continue his skeptic crusade after death. Still, he never could escape the curious craze, as they still are holding seances for Houdini, who apparently hasn't gotten the message. Nonetheless, seance records became popular souvenirs for alleged contacts with the dead. Here's a hunk a hunk of burning transdimensional linkage from the 1979 Elvis Presley seance record. Um, but he's he's saying we're coming to some understanding, and he said it's about it was a lot of time wasted, a lot of time wasted. And, oh God, he's going to all motion again. It doesn't help. Um, he. He cried and cried and cried at the death of his mother. Did he feel sad when he left? Yes, yes, because now he realises he could have done more. Um, He's left the job unfinished, virtually. He feels he's left it unfinished. And he said, like that particular recording that was left literally half Dead Elvis clearly wanted a little less conversation and just one more fried peanut butter and banana sandwich with a side of amphetamines. Rosemary Brown wasn't the only musical channeler on the scene. Here's a clip of 19-year-old Leo allowing the billowing tenor of legendary opera clown Caruso to flow through him. Still, sometimes communication goes a bit awry and the medium starts spewing out some crazy ancient language. Xenoglossia is a step beyond just your run-of-the-mill glossolalia as the entranced person is not only speaking a language that they have no way of knowing, but they are speaking a language that no one has ever heard. Gibberish. See if you can decipher this Banta speech from 1948. <laughs> Alistair Crowley, who we'll circle back to in a minute, was particularly adept at Xenoglossia and spitting hot fire at his Golden Dawn devotees. Arthur M. Ohorela Kabakiri, 
Even Thomas Edison let his devil-may-care attitude plan to build a working dial-a-ghost spirit phone. He proclaimed that his proposed technology would be powered by any sort of occult or media means, but rather his phone to talk to dead people was constructed from straight science. Edison was long fascinated with the world beyond the veil and had invented a few less-than-effective spirit-detecting devices. The news of the spirit phone endeavor went viral, though mostly as a joke. Unfortunately, the Wizard of Menlo Park never actually was able to get around to constructing his spirit phone that worked, or else he certainly would have called up his recently deceased frenemy, Alexander Graham, to tell him to suck his bells. <laughs> in the early 20th century, mystics, particularly in Germany, became fascinated with the capturing of paranormal music, which is music that has no physical source. Music that just is often resounding from the halls of castles, churches, palaces, hotels, and country homes. For centuries, listeners were passive in this eerie phenomenon, until recording technology came along and provided a means of sharing music that emanates from the ether. Listen to this airy, enchanting tune recorded by P. Affalter Zinner that wouldn't be out of place coming from the BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Occasionally, you might inadvertently crash a ghoulish karaoke night. When you have an eternity to kill, you might as well spend a few nights with Casper and the boys belting out my way. Here is a stunning female chanteuse entity. Paranormal researcher Dr. Melvin Willen, sounds like one of those late night hosts. I think his middle name is Erwin Bartholomew. I thought it was Dr. Melvin I.B. Willen. <laughs> Dr. Willen is a master of the understatement when he states that documentation of musical hauntings are highly unreliable. However, concludes that despite large amounts of research presenting plausible explanations of paranormal music, subjective experiences can never be fully discounted. When we were looking this up, or at least when I was looking up these phantom sounds, I came across an interesting article about people who hear voices and songs in their heads. And it was really interesting that I know it has nothing really to do with what we're, we're talking about here, but I thought it was fascinating that they explained the phenomenon by saying that your mind is always looking for things that are familiar. So mm -hmm. it, any sounds that that person or those people who suffer from that hear, their minds are kind of turning it into songs that they, that they have learned in the past. So they're generally kind of 
fairly familiar songs, not maybe not quite Happy Birthday, but something along those lines. Well, that's a lot of what people say was happening with Rosemary Brown, is that she just kind of subconsciously changed music she knew, changed this classical music she knew to become something else, and then just found a way to deal with the cognitive dissonance of this music she was hearing by saying, oh, I must be, I must have been gifted this music. But that song that we played, not the, the not the singing ghost, but the one before, I don't know if that came out of nowhere. Like, I don't know if it was paranormal music or what, but it's incredible. I'm obsessed with it. And I looked far and wide to find out if I could find any more information about it. And I, I couldn't, but I want to, because it's just, pardon the expression, it is haunting. It It just feels like this powerful thing, like that supposedly came out of nowhere. I am certainly not willing to believe any of this stuff, but yeah, that is really cool. Clearly, the idea of music having some sort of sway in the metaphysical world certainly predates recorded sound. The Catholic Church banned the musical interval of the tritone, or diminished fifth dubbed the devil's chord. The foreboding sound made by a combination of simple notes was thought to be addictive while provoking unclean sinful thoughts in listeners, much like listening to ABBA. Eventually, the handle of devil's music would be hung on jazz, blues, and early rock and roll. That what is new, misunderstood, and different surely hails from hellfire. This concept would eventually be embraced by musicians. The most terrifying field recordings are those of possession. Malevolent forces entering an unsuspecting person to wreak havoc and destroy a soul from within. Like a chimichunga. There are ample recordings out there of exorcisms and supposed possession, but one of the most famous is that of the Enfield poltergeist possession from 1978, when two young girls, Janet and Margaret, were the center of a controversial media frenzy around a demonic entity which was supposedly terrorizing the children by moving around furniture, knocking on the walls, throwing objects around the room, and levitating the girls. At one point, the dark spirit who called himself Bill, ooh, inhabited the two girls and answered the questions of paranormal researcher Maurice Gross. Brace yourself. Hello. Hello. Another immensely disturbing but important tape recording was the exorcism of Annalise Michelle by priest Arnold Renz. Why do I suddenly have a hankering for some split pea soup? Well, there's a whole realm of discussions about the authenticity of spiritualist and possession recordings, which should also factor in mental illness, religiosity, and just straight-up possibility of hoaxes. That is well outside the purview of this episode. 
What is certain is that these field recordings perpetuated the pop culture fascination with the occult into a more modern era. First, the occurrences were convincing enough to lend credence to the possibility of the existence of unknown worlds. Second, they demonstrated the power of audio technology as a means of interacting with things both evil and unseen. Finally, they furthered the intrigue that people naturally have about the great beyond. What clues we can gather on this side of the celestial curtain. But paranormal recordings are only half of the equation for the rise of occult records in the late 60s and 70s. The other half involves the canonizing of free-thinking occultists who are actively pursuing means of harnessing the dark. As spiritualism waned, Satanism, black magic, witchcraft, voodoo, divination, astrology, and all sorts of everyday practical sorcery slowly crept into the forefront of the shadowy parts of modern life. Aleister Crowley is the foremost figure in the occult revival, and his presence still looms large on modern culture. A product of the magic and occultist revival of the late 19th century in Britain, Crowley's teachings, style, and image has had successive influence on any number of peripheral subcultures. Beats, hippies, rockers, punks, ravers, goths, cult kids, furries. Crowley was a rich kid who rejected his parents' Christianity to spend his youth writing poetry and climbing mountains. He eventually fell in with the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn and started learning ceremonial magic. Crowley was contacted by a supernatural entity, I was, who mentally transported him the Book of the Law, which would become a sacred text for the religion he would found, Thelema. Blending the ideas of spiritualism with ancient Eastern theory and symbolism would be a blueprint to help mankind to enter the Aeon of Horus a new era where humans would take control of their destiny and destroy fundamentalist beliefs through the use of magic and sex, and sex magic, and also drugs, and uh, more drugs, a shit ton of drugs. The magic he championed was spelled with a K at the end. The K was used to signify the difference between his ritualistic practice and the parlor trick illusion. The extra K is for Psycho! Big Al embraced the self-imposed image of the Beast 666 as he found a life of near-constant controversy as he wrote prolifically while living an intentionally amoral libertine and decadent lifestyle of self-importance and promotion. The press deemed him the world's wickedest man. His dead-eye stare was hypnotizing and fear-inducing. The stories of Crowley's escapades are both numerous and lecherous, his writing is stark, mysterious, and often incomprehensible. Though one can understand how he would draw people into his words. Want to try? Have a listen to the rare recording of him reading his verse of lament, The Poet, that I think was likely a prognostication of the coming of notorious demonic writer Shel Silverstein. The poet, bearing me in the nameless grave, I came from God the world to save. I brought them wisdom from above, worship and liberty and love. They slew me, for I did disparage therefore religion, law and marriage. So be my grave without a name, that earth may swallow up my shame. There have been some vinyl reissues of the few wax cylinder recordings if you're needing some fun tunes for your kid's next birthday party. 
Speaking of recordings, Crowley thought that music was best backwards. In his 1913 book, Magic, Volume 4, he encouraged followers to listen to phonograph records reversed in order to train the mind to think backwards by external means. Though his life ended in 1947 with him poverty-stricken and in relative obscurity, the myth of the man and his magic teachings found their way to seekers of arcane wisdom and those who were trying to find a role model for the dramatic rejection of societal norms. In particular, the Book of Life and his intricately decorated tarot deck, Toph, became occult store classics that gave Crowley vitality long after his death. His most famous phrases were turned into a mantra for so many disaffected persons. There is no law beyond do what thou wilt. Every man and woman is a star. These short quotes would be a call to arms against Christianity and the structures of modern civilization, a manifesto to self-indulgence that would soon resonate far into youth culture as a bunch of long-haired hedonists had found their philosophical forefather. We'll return to see more about those long hairs and where they ended up in a moment. In England, witchcraft had been banned for centuries until 1951 when the Parliament enacted the Fraudulent Mediums Act, which allowed the practicing of occult religions, but prohibited making money off acts of prophecy, telepathy, clairvoyance, and other supernatural powers. Gerald Gardner was a British civil servant who took a keen interest in the magical practices of the native peoples he experienced while in foreign lands. He eventually started writing papers on the matter and would float through different occult groups like the Rosicrucians and New Forest Coven. After spending some time as haggling with Crowley, Gardner put many of the various ideas together, essentially forming the basis for the modern Wiccan movement. His work and the repeal of the witchcraft ban would propel a pagan revival in England in the 50s and 60s. And while England looked towards its witchy past, the occult in America was looking more towards fancy clothes and wild parties. Anton Zandor LeVay is probably the biggest reason that occultism became cool in the 60s. Leaving his home at an early age to join a traveling carnival, he was disgusted by the moral hypocrisy he saw in men attending body late-night shows on Saturday and tent revivals on Sunday morning. He was a musical prodigy and adept at any number of instruments, even having a short stint as the oboist for the San Francisco Ballet Orchestra. Once he settled in California, he did all sorts of normal stuff, like having an affair with Marilyn Monroe, or becoming a psychic investigator for the police, and started getting famous for his wild organ playing. LeVay was a natural showman, and people were drawn to him and his antics, like driving a coroner's van around town, or strolling around the block with his pet black leopard, Zoltan. He was fashionable, calm, and well-spoken, a stark difference from the raving, drug-addled madmen perception many people had of most Satan worshippers. During this period, his non-antic time was spent writing and gathering a group of disciples for his lectures on magic and the occult. In 1961, he founded the Church of Satan, which doesn't actually believe in the devil, but rather presents itself as skeptical atheists disavowing all other formal religions in favor of rituals and living based on one's own belief. He wrote the Satanic Bible and several other books and became a huge media presence. People, especially celebrities, flocked to his lavish style and free-thinking ways. LeVay was the Hugh Hefner of the underworld, and the party scene around his church was chock-full of drugs, orgies, and music. 
and to bring more people into the fold, LeVay used records. The first was Satanic Mass, which was a 1967 recording of a ritual the high priest performed at the Church of Satan headquarters, the Black House. Side A was the organ-drenched ceremonial baptism of his daughter, Zena. In the name of Satan, Lucifer, Belial, Leviathan, and all you demons named and nameless, walkers in the velvet darkness, all you dim things, twisted, half-seen creatures, wraith-like, glimpsed beyond the swerving, foggy veil of time and spacious night, draw near, attend us, we command you, welcome a new mistress, Zena, creature of ecstatic magic light. With us say, welcome to you, child of joy, sweet passion's daughter, product of the dark and musk-filled... If you're looking for something a bit more patriotic, Side B has LeVay reading from his unholy tome, backed by the likes of John Philip Sousa and Richard Wagner. Subtle. That's some uplifting downfalling. Blessed are the mighty-minded, for they shall ride the whirlwinds. Cursed are they who teach lies for truth and truth for lies, for they are abomination. Thrice cursed are the weak whose insecurity makes them vile, for they shall serve and suffer. The angel of self-deceit is camped in the souls of the righteous. The eternal flame of power through joy dwelleth within the flesh of the Satanist. The cover of the album is spectacular. A handmade-looking drawn pentagram with a goat's head and ancient-looking glyphs. Interest in the church fell off pretty quickly as the 70s progressed, and the organization was embattled during the Satanic Panic. LeVay would strangely be compelled to release more music in the mid-90s. Satan Takes a Holiday is a collection of idiosyncratic cover versions of torch songs from the 1920s and 30s, with a whirling synthesizer and his wife assisting on vocals. The devil started dancing, he was quite entrancing, when he did the jangle his own way. We're rapping loudly and he began to shuffle proudly That's the way that Satan takes a holiday One dedicated follower of LaVey was underground filmmaker Kenneth Anger. Anger was additionally a devotee and practitioner of Thelema, the religion Crowley founded. His movies were the embodiment of the subversive, featuring surrealistic homoerotic occult scenes. His scandalous film, Lucifer Rising, was a touchstone of the era, and as mentioned in the cult episode, was scored by the family's murderous hanger-on, Bobby Beausoleil. Eventually, films like The Exorcist, The Omen, Rosemary's Baby, The Wicker Man, and Witchfinder General 
would cover similar blasphemous and hedonistic grounds, but anger was the originator of the sacrilegious style. As a respected artist, anger was the link to the occult world for a lot of the British rockers and the Laurel Canyon scene. Another strange connection between the occult and popular music was that of legendary painter, filmmaker, folklorist, musicologist, weirdo, Harry Smith. Smith was long interested in Crowley, tarot cards, and all manner of various shamanic practices. When his incredibly influential anthology of American folk music was released, people were perplexed by the alchemical instrument on the cover that he called the Celestial Monochord. He'd often speak of his work in cosmological terms. He once used voodoo to try to raise the dead at the Chelsea Hotel, and he drew up plans for the effort to levitate the Pentagon, a stunt dreamed up by Allen Ginsberg and the Fugs. Definitely deserving of a more complete look than this brief aside, Harry Smith's occult proclivities must be acknowledged as a huge part of his looming figure in the world of folk music and truly all popular music. We kind of mention this, but we don't really talk about how with blues, especially, there was kind of that occult presence with that, you know, Robert Johnson with the Hellhound and, you know, talking Mm -hmm. about bones and stuff like that. It got that kind of unfair reputation, mostly because it was like a literal demonization of black music. But we skip over that, but a lot of folk music and it always had that dark, mysterious side with it, too. The 60s presented a perfect storm for occultism to seep its way into the counterculture. Social upheaval and a general sense of youth rebellion against the system opened the door for practices from marginalized outsider and bohemian groups to find a new life with hippies who were seeking something new to completely separate themselves from their parents' social, religious, and political ideologies. Rebellious mysticism began to take hold. Everybody from LSD tribes to organic utopian communes to the fringier Jesus people movements picked up whatever sorts of Eastern and esoteric philosophies that tickled their unbathed fancies. Theosophy, Tibetan Buddhism, Taoism, yoga, parapsychology, Zen, astrology, the I Ching, tarot, chakras, reincarnation, and naturally magical religions like witchcraft, Satanism, and paganism. Delving into an anti-Christian, anti-capitalist, and anti-conformist belief system was the ultimate subversive affront to the establishment, not to mention the teachings of personal liberation that was totally for drug use, sex, and unnatural accumulation of power. It's easy to pile on the hippies and blame them for all kinds of stupid shit, like drum circles, patchouli, optimism. One more thing we can add to that list is the craze of instructional occult records. These records were a minor fad from about 1969 to 1974, and for this episode, we're bookending them with 1969's Witchcraft and Magic, Adventures in Demonology, and 1974's Malleus Maleficarum. The former is the first witchcraft record to be produced by a major record label, Capital. It's a perfect entrance record for pre-witchcrafters, as it provides a nice historical telling of witches from being burned alive in the Middle Ages to a valiant attempt to take down Hitler during World War II by raising the Cone of Power. Another delight about this album is that it's narrated by the Prince of Menace himself, Vincent Price. It is time to summon now the evil spirits. Have you 
scrupulously performed all that is required. Have you? Now, all right. Then begin to recite the following conjuration with confidence and assurance. I invoke and command thee, O cursed spirits. Bail, Bathim, Agares, Marbas, Pursan, Abigar, Amon. Oh, and if you can somehow find an original copy, make sure it still contains instructions for creating a Hand of Glory, which is a magical item of great power, made from the severed left hand of a hanged man. 1974's Malleus Maleficarum was put out by the always wonderful Cademan Records. The title translates to The Hammer of Witches, and it was a treatise first published in 1486 by Catholic clergyman Heinrich Kramer. This edition was translated by Montague Summers, who was a friend of Crowley and often ridiculed by LaVey. Historically, this is the most famous book on witchcraft and is told from the point of view of a witch finder, who serves in a similar manner to Van Helsing, where the Vincent Price record is spooky and campy and makes witchcraft seem like something fun to do on a Tuesday after work with the gang while sipping drinks that end in teeny. This tome is a very serious book espousing the evils of witches and warlocks. This is an endorsement on the extermination of witches. If you're tired of all the witches wreaking havoc in your village, this is the record you play and take notes to while listening. It covers their lascivious ceremonies and nasty effects on society. It also talks about the most effective way to get a confession from someone whom you might think is a witch. Guess what? It's torture. Hmm. And of course... There's only one way to remedy the evils of witchcraft, the death penalty. Usually by burning them alive, but not always. One of the other common witch-killing methods was to put them inside of a nail-studded barrel, roll the barrel down a long cobble road, and then, once the barrel stopped, light the barrel on fire. The record is narrated by Scottish actor Ian Richardson, who you may remember from playing Sherlock Holmes in a few 70s films, or maybe as Mr. Warren in Brazil but probably as the stuffy Grey Poupon guy. Pardon me, would you have any Grey Poupon? But of course. Malleus Maleficarum is best played as your dalliance with witchcraft is coming to an end. The records that fall between these last two are the ones that are the most fun. Some are like infomercials, getting you pumped into creating your best life choice yet, witchcraft! Some are TED Talks from Ball, on how to make it in this mixed-up, crazy, topsy-turvy end of days. Some are going to remind you of cable access TV, but less polished. Louise Hubner was the first star of the Vinyl Witch movement, with her Seduction Through Witchcraft album, apparating in 1969. Hubner spends a lot of time making sure that you know she is the official witch of Los Angeles. Or the Ofla. She takes that title very seriously, despite it being presented to her as a goof. What makes the title and her pride about it even better is that many members of the modern Wiccan movement resented Hubner for perpetuating negative stereotypes of witches. When I think of traditional witch stereotypes, I think of Miss Gulch from The Wizard of Oz, or Witch Hazel from Looney Tunes, or that witch from Room on the Broom. Kooky-looking women with warts and green skin who have cauldrons and broomsticks at the ready. Hubner was not perpetuating that, that's for sure. She was more of who sexy witch costumes are designed for. 
The album covers how to become a modern witch, as many of these will, along with a few spells about snagging that special guy through potion. That is also a running theme through these instructional records. How to pick up boys with spells and how to make money without working hard. The famous album, Picking Up Girls Made Easy, wasn't released until 1975, but this certainly seems to be a kind of response to that idea. She has a couple great track names, like The Earthquake Spell for Unwanted Lovers and Turkish Bean Spell for Tender Love. I have a Turkish bean smell. (laughs) But far and away, the best thing about this album is the music. B.B. and Louis Barron scored the record, so it has a futuristic electronic sound reminiscent of their Forbidden Planet score. Wear your ring at all times. You'd be a fool to cast a spell without it. Why would the Barons create music for Louise Hubner? Well, her husband, Mentor, did the storyboards for Forbidden Planet in 1956, so he was still either friends with them or had some dirt on them. Either way, this is one of the best witch albums solely because of that amazing sound. In 1970, British celebrity witches Alex and Maxine Sanders released their album, A Witch is Born. Unlike Hubner's album, this isn't a primer on Witching Made Easy. Instead, it's an actual ceremony recorded live with a play-by-play announcer. During this album, a new witch is initiated into the ancient craft. We'll call her Janet. Because her name is Janet. (laughs) This is a very sacrosanct process with Alex and Janet both being all naked and stuff, while the genteel Stuart Farrar tells us what's happening. Blessed be thy feet, what's brought thee in these ways? He kisses her right foot and then her left. Blessed be thy knees that shall kneel at the sacred altar. He kisses her right knee and then her left. Blessed be thy womb without which we would not be. He kisses her womb. Blessed be thy breasts formed in beauty. Her right breast and her left breast. Blessed be thy lips, that shall utter the sacred names. And finally he kisses her lips. Just in case that isn't over the top enough, they randomly throw in Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries when crucial moments are abreast. 1971 brought us two of the most well-known modern witch records. The first is by Barbara the Grey Witch. She espouses the virtues of the modern witch and how their lives are normal like everyone else's. She plays a telephone call between her and her witch pal, where they discuss the usual things, like boyfriends who literally turned evil, and annoying imps that bite them while they sleep. As Barbara says after the call, it's just two modern women gossiping to each other. Very much like Louise Hubner, Barbara spends most of her album teaching gals how to ensnare men through magic spells, the ingredients of which can usually be purchased at the corner market. She also teaches us the Black Mass Prayer, which is just the Lord's Prayer with the words in reverse order. This makes the devil seem maybe not so clever. And of course, she has a few songs between spells. The music in the background is pretty good yet again, and has a musique concrete feel to it. Here's the witch's song. Enjoy. Death took away your life, your face covered with black. 
But nothing can take away our love, my candles bring it back. Ooh, my candles bring it back. As a quick where are they now, Barbara is still in business. She does readings out of her palatial house, the Raven House, in palatial South Bend, Indiana. Go Irish. At one point, she considered turning the third floor into a dead and breakfast, but the ghost would have none of that and kept frightening the construction workers. She still uses Barbara the Grey Witch moniker, though she only calls herself a witch because it's easier for people to understand. Technically, she's a parapsychologist and claims to have a master's degree in that field. On the wall, right next to that degree from an unnamed university, hangs a framed letter from the Trump campaign, thanking her for being a campaign volunteer. I think she got that degree from Trump University. Also in 1971, about 200 miles north of South Bend in Detroit, a former elementary school teacher turned university professor released her How To Witch album. Marion Kuklo was able to trace her lineage all the way back to the Green Witches of Scotland, who have been active since the 15th century. At the age of 18, Marion started teaching elementary school and also took on the witch name of Gundella. It wasn't until she reached 40, however, that her career really took off. It was at that point that she became a teacher at the University of Michigan. In addition to becoming a very popular and well-liked teacher, she also started giving lectures on witchcraft around town and became a local celebrity. She gained a column in the local newspaper called Witch Watch, where she'd give advice from the perspective of a witch and she'd also share recipes. Non-witch recipes, unfortunately, so no toad or newt of any kind. She also wrote a few books and finally released her album called The Hour of the Witch. Like the earlier ones we mentioned, the album focuses little on historical witches and more on the modern-day witch, with yet more spells about attracting lovers and one about discouraging unwanted suitors. And repeat after me the following incantation. Wild and whirling spirits! are in my thoughts. Demons are in my mind. This man is the object of my distemper. So that I may... Gandela is probably the best of the bunch. She was smart and had a sense of humor about herself and how she was viewed while never belittling the craft itself. She also had interesting synth-heavy background music. In this case, it was played by her son James. It's very sweet. Her album is worth finding, and it's even worth grabbing the 2017 reissue, which collects a lot of her Witch Watch column as its own journal. It has a new cover, which is even better than the original, and it's on, of course, green vinyl. Gandela passed away in 1993. In 1972, we hear from a fellow who calls himself Jamra. This is a satanic vanity record called The Second Coming. It features a single track per side. Side 1 is Armageddon, and Side 2's track is called Initiation, Sacrifice, 
Satanic Truth. This may be the most boring, monotonous incantation of Satan ever. It's basically Ben Stein taking attendance for 38 minutes. He sounds like he's always about to yawn. For they shall receive satanic justice. Cursed are the good, for they know not what they do. In 1973, a spoken word album by a person who is known by two names. Xenogenesis, or Sexenogenesis. With his album that is either a tribute to Satan or Popeye, called I Am That I Am. (laughs) This is about the end of the world, which Sexagenesis is, whatever his name is, can stop. If you send him your money, he and only he has a knowledge of metaphysics that no other mortal has. Put your trust in sexagenesis. Kingdom of God within us, within the Adam of I am that I am, a son of God, Amen. And the books of the Bible are statements by different prophets, writers about the same identical subject, the salvation of mankind, or the conservation of... Also in 1973 comes a much more well-known and important witchy double album by Nat Friedland called The Occult Explosion. This album is much easier to listen to than most of what we've talked about. This is an album of mostly interviews with experts on witchcraft, Satanism, astrology, yoga, mysticism, UFOs, reincarnation... ESP, Psychic Phenomenon, Spiritualism, Indian Magic, and Meditation. The best interviews on this are with Rosemary Brown, Anton LaVey, Alan Watts, and Louise Hubner. My name is Nat Friedland, and I have written a book called The Occult Explosion. On this record album, you're going to hear the statements, in their own voices, of today's most important leaders in the occult and in ESP research. I think you will find that listening to the ideas of these people is going to change and greatly enrich the way in which you look at your world. At its highest levels, the occult is an adventure in mind expansion. Welcome now to the voices of the occult. The album closes with two tracks by Black Widow, the preeminent satanic band of the day. More on them shortly. Babetta the Sexy Witch released her album in 1974, Babetta was the owner of a supernatural shop in L.A. where I'm sure they sold candles and incense and shit. She's a great spokesperson for the craft, as she loved being a celebrity by appearing on the Merv Griffin show, for example, and was allegedly the first sorceress to introduce witchcraft to Japan. Her website also boasts about her being a frequent consultant for movies and television shows like Starsky and Hutch and Hunter. This is a very similar album to the previously mentioned. Life is a Modern Witch. How to Attract Men. Synthy background music. Raise the wand overhead and evoke Hegel, saying, By Alcolum and Adamil, I conjure thee, Hegel. Again, circumambulate the circle, and this time say, By Gesa and Gesoa, I conjure thee, Hegel. Bring thy presence into this glass, so that we may behold Though we've tried to cut off the occult record fad to about 1974, there's one truly special album released in 75 by Will Jima. The album is called Revelation 666. Will Jima is a former shipbuilding executive 
who in the late autumn of 73 had a UFO experience on the Gulf Coast of the United States. The experience caused Jima to resign his shipbuilding position and began to travel around the country as an evangelist of Satan, trying to make the public aware of the real presence of UFOs. Jima maintains that the U.S. government has been involved in a cosmic Watergate for the past 25 years. Mr. Jima states the government is covering up the knowledge that aliens from another world have had the Earth under surveillance for a number of years now. This is the best album of all in one regard. It's amateurism. Jima is clearly reading his spoken word epic, mostly about the numbers 3 and 11, from a book with a program synth at his side. Occasionally, he accidentally bumps the synth, sending the background music to the foreground until he realizes it and adjusts it. The album is another clue that Satan might need an HR department. And then I remembered that President Richard M. Nixon was the 11th man to have been vice president and then become president of the United States. When President Nixon resigned, Gerald Ford became the 38th president of the United States. Three and eight is 11. Then I saw the zodiac sign for water, Aquarius. We are now in the age of Aquarius, the 11th house of the zodiac. Suddenly in the watery vision, I saw a boat sinking slowly beneath the sea. President Kennedy's PT boat had been sunk during World War II, and he and 10 of his men had been saved, 11 in all. And if you're tired from staying up well past the witching hour, practicing your incantations and cauldron potion spells, the secretive hermetic sect of Rosicrucians has the cure for what ails you. A nice ambient record with Imperator Ralph M. Lewis delivering helpful mind-expanding practices that allow you to both open your mind to esoteric truths of the ancient past and look good in yoga pants. It's the kegels for your third eye. Music of a certain kind, as here presented, arouses the higher emotions and makes access to those other states of consciousness more easily attained. As the fascination with black magic seeped into the counterculture during the 1960s, all sorts of bands dabbled with the dark arts, though mostly on a superficial level. A cardboard cutout of the glowering Aleister Crowley made an appearance on the cover of Sgt. Pepper's and on a Doors record. Or the Stones, who, at the suggestion of Kenneth Anger, called an album their Satanic Majesty's Request, and then released the hit Sympathy for the Devil. Led Zeppelin would lean into the occult lifestyle and aesthetic, with Jimmy Page leading the band to do some Crowley-inspired rituals, carving Golden Dawn mantras into run-out grooves, plastering cover artwork with runes and symbiology, buying Crowley's former bachelor pad, and in general, acting like they were much more mystical than they were. The biggest chart-topping bands definitely worked to help normalize interest in the occult for kids who were already primed by reading too many pulp novels and Tolkien. Bowie really took the great beast teachings to heart as he endeavored to make his music, like Crowley's magic, into a transmutive and transcendent vehicle. Throughout Bowie's constantly evolving career, he alluded to the presence of Crowley. The hunky-dory song Quicksand is an ode to the magus. 
I'm closer to the golden dawn Immersed in Crowley's uniform of imagery He even emulated Crowley's gazeless stare in a photo shoot where he dressed in Golden Dawn-esque garb. At one point, Bowie started writing a book that contained Crowley-esque rituals to be called The Return of the Thin White Duke. But he got sidetracked by a cocaine-induced nervous breakdown where he suffered mind-shattering hallucinations, like believing the devil was taking dips in his L.A. home swimming pool. Turns out it was just a really sunburnt Iggy Pop. The abandoned book was worked into the Station to Station album that many feel was a treatise on the traveling between metaphysical astral planes. That, too, could be a side effect of the cocaine. But it didn't stop there. Sammy Davis Jr. famously got an evil eye for the L.A. satanic orgy scene and would eventually star in a pilot for an ill-fated NBC show, Poor Devil, which was an even worse occult-themed sitcom than The Golden Girls. Square soft rockers like Daryl Hall and Krista Berg took the plunge into hell. Even Mick Ronson had a legit glamified occult rocker that sounds like Satan sequins. There is no band more closely associated with the origins of occult rock than Black Sabbath. Their debut, with its foreboding ominous cover, its down-tuned guitars maliciously blasting out the Catholic band tritones, and its barely intelligible sorcery-laden lyrics, practically exudes darkness and moral turpitude. While the sound was absolutely monumental and monstrous in making Stoner swoon and Hesher's thrash, the reality is that the origin of mainstream metal starts not from a hellfire cabal with figures in hooded robes carrying goblets of blood, but with a meddling Birmingham jazz blues band called Earth, who were looking for a gimmick to find fame. Nine-and-a-half-fingered guitarist Tony Iommi introduced the idea of adding a little fiendishness to their sound after walking past a theater populated with a crowd of kids waiting to get into a hammer horror flick. Of course, the ploy worked. However, though the band has denied this, there is the possibility that Iommi might have gotten himself a copy of the Coven record and decided this was the right band to rip off. Coven was the quintessential occult rock band, and really has a good argument for being the first metal band to fully embrace the Prince of Darkness. Coming from the Chicago underground scene, the band was fronted by Jinx Dawson, who had grown up in a family long involved in occult traditions like the Left Hand Path or giving your kid a stupid name. She studied opera but opted for rock and roll and quickly joined up with drummer Steve Ross and bassist Greg Oz Osborne. Yep, Oz Osborne. Their heavy music pushed boundaries with open mentions of sex, Satan, and psychedelics. The stage show involved a black mass rolling out in coffins a la Screamin' Jay and a roadie hanging on an inverted cross. The demonic grooves and incendiary stage show 
caught the attention of major labels and they were brought in to make a record for Mercury with producer Bill Trott, who brought boxes of personal occult books into the fold. The ensuing 1969 album, titled Witchcraft Destroys Minds and Reaps Souls, was like nothing the rock world had ever seen. The sonic equivalent of a church burning. The song sounded lascivious and possessed, with Dawson singing seductive and scary. The lyrics were blatantly and thrallingly satanic, like the opener, Black Sabbath, which again came out a year before Black Sabbath on Black Sabbath, Black Sabbath, which we'll hear in full at the end of the show. Coven grooviness was enough to keep the listeners engaged with the music to forget that the words were actively encouraging witchcraft and devil worship. Wicked Woman sounds something like what would happen if someone lit Stevie Nicks' shawl on fire and she had to spin herself into a frenzy to keep herself from being engulfed in flames, provided you could hear it over the laughter. Most outrageous of all their cuts was the final self-explanatory track, Satanic Mass. 13 minutes of ritualistic chants and prayers to the evil one. I deny God, creator of heaven and earth, and I adhere to thee, and believe in thee. Kiss that goat! As the shavings of the clock do never return to the clock from which they are taken, so may your soul never return to heaven. Now, remove your garment and lie down... If that weren't enough, any impressionable young lad who managed to get his hands on the album would open the gatefold to see Jinx nude splayed across an altar surrounded by skulls, candles, and dark bunks giving the sign of the devil horns, which Jinx learned from her occultist relatives. Get ye to confession, lad. As a side note, this is the first instance of the devil horns hand gesture that has become so ubiquitous in rock and roll. Gene Simmons, of course, tried to copyright the move, but was thrown back by Dawson's lawsuit and ample photographic evidence. Despite a wide release, the record and tour was quickly pulled as soon as a photograph circulated of California crazy Charles Manson holding the album as well as a write-up in Esquire magazine called Evil Lurks in California. Even though there was no formal connection between Manson and the band, the hysteria was enough to stop the group on their highway to hell. Any copies had to be sold in paper bags under the counter. Mercury bailed, and even though the band had a sort of big hit with the decidedly not sinister church camp sing-along One Tin Soldier from the very underrated movie Billy Jack, and then to non-occult records. By the mid-70s, Coven had almost been entirely forgotten as bands like Sabbath, Venom, Merciful Fate, and Judas Priest grew in notoriety and disdain on the backs of this legendary cult band who at the time legitimately believed in witchcraft. 
Across the ocean, a band called Black Widow was making similar waves with their album Sacrifice on the success of the Antichrist anthem Come to the Sabbath, which was the only song of this era that had even a modicum of success on the mainstream. Formed in Leicester, the band was a few members of a blue-eyed soul outfit who fell in with a drummer, Clive Box. Box was very into black magic and was obsessed with it being authentic. They had an intricate stage show, which included a faux virginal sacrifice, with the lead singer wielding a broadsword. Wiccan high priest Alex Sanders came on as advisor, helping to ensure no demons would actually be inadvertently summoned at the shows. Sanders' wife, Maxine, often volunteered to be one of the many unclothed women during the stage show. Sometimes the women would stand up and whip the lead singer, because why not? And there was also the mention of some not very subtle sexual intercourse going on in the background of the shows. As a masterful bit of showmanship, they would have a priest figure come out to warn the audience about what they were about to see before the band started playing. Their shows garnered plenty of protesters, as you might imagine, and their North American tour was canceled after the Manson murders. The band that took their spot was the apparently less evil Black Sabbath. Black Widow's sound was a bit more proggy with the occasional flute and keyboard that conjured a compelling but strange medieval sound. Come to the Sabbath is a Stone Cold Killer and one of the most covered metal songs. Discard your clothes and come on foot through streams and fields and moonlit miles. Your body's soaked in secret oils. Perfume herbs will heal your sores. Join me in my search for power. Wives and husbands bring your kin. We'll be as one within the hour. Let the Sabbath now begin. Much like Coven, the band got a bit tired of being banned and cut off from touring, so they tried to go a bit more straight with their next albums and were eventually lost to time. The most unsettling entry of early occult rock has to come from the Italian prog rockers Jakulov. Jakulov, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> with their album in Cauda Semper Stat Venunum, which translates, It Always Ends in Poison. Incredibly inventive, moody music that was equal parts Black Mass Cantos, horror soundtrack, and death waltz. There's a good deal of controversy over whether this album was actually ever released in 1969. The legend is that musician and fledgling mystic Antonio Bardacchetti met a wizard medium named Franz Parthensee. They communed with dark spirits who granted him a musical vision that was so sinister that he had difficulty finding others who were willing to make the otherworldly sounds with him. He eventually recruited an aged British pipe organist and a young mysterious keyboardist called Fiamo dello Spirito. The record was recorded in a crumbling British castle during several seances led by Parthensee. Self-financed, only 333 copies were pressed and mostly given away to other dark arts fanatics. The sound is beyond strange with droning pipe organs, spell incantations, and a shredding, distorted guitar that seems impossibly unlikely for the 1960s.
The most likely explanation is that the album was released in the late 60s, but the only available release was cleaned up and given massive guitar overdubs in the 90s. Like true cultists, the band remains absolutely secretive about the true nature of the record, which is as heavy as anything fellow Italian Frighteners Goblin released. Jacula evolved into a couple different bands, Invisible Force and Antonius Rex that continued in the style of perpetual spectral terror. Zyor is pub rock occultism, led by serial cultist Keith Bonzor, who wanted to make his show a spectacle. The Zyor shows sound like a blueprint for Guar's oeuvre, as they would have giant costumed monstrosities fighting amongst flashlights and smoke, until they would grab an unsuspecting female from the crowd and pull her on stage for a pretend sacrifice. Doesn't sound very fun. Prop knives and fake blood would fly about the stage, causing the occasional acid freakout. The album cover for the first record was done by the same artist who did the first Black Sabbath record, and they look very, very similar. Unfortunately, the sound was too R&B and their style a bit too theatrical to truly make a huge impact. Bonzor disappeared from the scene suddenly, and it was rumored he was executed at a Black Mass. But, little digging... His LinkedIn profile shows that he was mostly selling timeshares to a well-equipped Panama City beach condo during that time. Coming from the cursed land that is Idaho, Salem Mass released their record, Witch Burning, in 1971 with a masterful distorted guitar and Moog slashed throughout the epic opening track. It billows like smoke rising from ashy remains of one of Satan's handmaidens. Ever hear a harpsichord that makes you want to wet yourself? Well, then you haven't been listening to Dr. Z and his doctoral-level keyboards, accompanying songs about souls splitting themselves into pieces. Here's the track, Spiritus Manus et Umbra.
The cover of The Distance Between Us by Don Bradshaw Leather is a screaming Jesus freak-looking lunatic totally covered in black soot. Like an inbred phoenix risen out of the flames just to pull you right back in with him. The horror symphony contained on the record itself is perfect for the cover. It's the sound of eternity in the furnace of hells. There's little to no true information on the record. Some allege it's the work of the Enid's Robert John Godfrey. But the one thing that everyone can agree on is that this album doesn't come from around here. Bond was one of the originators of the early English R&B scene, playing Hammond organ in Alex Corner's Blues Incorporated and the Grambon organization with Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce. That group dissolved from drugs and infighting, so Bond started getting into tarot cards and heroin and multicolored capes, eventually convincing himself that he was actually the child of Aleister Crowley, which was unlikely but plausible. Growing more unpredictable and drug-addled, he moved to the States and did some session work, and eventually started releasing his own music, which got more and more obsessed with the occult, culminating in his band, Holy Magic, releasing a free jazz mystic ranting record called We Put Our Magic On You, which honestly is pretty spectacular. His story gets much sadder after that. More drugs, institutionalization, and finally dying under the wheels of a tube train. Of course, once Sabbath hit it big, there was a slew of garage band imitators that stenciled pentagrams on their guitars and carved 666 into their desks at school. This really is a different subgenre of faux cult rock that could be a whole different episode. But just as a nod to these delicious, cheesy imposters, here's one of my favorites, Astaroth with Satan the Spiritus. The rise of British Wiccan and American mysticism also brought a softer musical dedication to the dark Dwimmercraft. 
Acid folk bands were often heavily in tune with the occult and would create a sound which was delicately pastoral while still carrying the weight of evil arcane. Unlike the forward-sounding hard rock and prog, these occultist folk bands created sounds that draw upon folk ballad oral tradition and can be reminiscent of medieval times, when supernatural explanations were more readily accepted. Audio alchemy that can sound of the heavens while actually being derived from the inferno. The British psychedelic folk outfit Comus sounds like court music in the throne room of Beelzebub. Using traditional folk structures, the band threw rock elements and any number of oddities to create a strange potion of unhinged freak folk. There is a distressing mood that permeates the entirety of their 1971 debut, First Utterance, with singing that is both strained and ethereal. The lyrics mix surreal fairy tale tropes with images of death, violence, gore, torture, and sorcery. The tunes have a hypnotizing appeal, drawing you into their deranged ceremony. And the cover art is some of the ugliest and most grotesque that I've ever seen. The British press, for the most part, hated the album, calling it a combination of the witch's chant for Macbeth and Mark Boland being squeezed to death, which is a move called the Feather Boa Constrictor. They released a very much more restrained follow-up before finally fading from the scene, but their first album remains one of the scariest relics of pagan folk made Sandy Denny shit her knickers. The band has found more critical acclaim in recent years, with followers like occult post-punkers Current 93 and Swedish metal band Opeth. Here's their ode to the goddess of the hunt, Diana. Similarly, Mr. Fox used a natural social degeneracy and violence in traditional folk music to create an unsettling presence in their music. Though not directly linked to the occult, their twisted folk stylings often leave them on the upper echelon of pagan folk music. Here's the bloody murder ballad that they took their name from. It's called Mr. Fox. Gwydion Penderwyn was huge on the neo-pagan scene, as he was particularly well-versed in the fairy tradition of witchcraft. He lived much of his life as a shamanistic fairy bard, which coincidentally is my character class in D&D, and his first recording, Songs for the Old Religion, he created a song for each of the Sabbaths, tunes about each season, and love songs for the goddesses and gods. Here is the witch's coven dance, which sounds a bit like the theme to Gilligan's Island. 
and really makes me confused about really what was happening on that island. Now if you be my lady love, then come and sit down near me, and I will sing a dancing song so everyone can hear me. We'll drink the muses' wine so fine, and eat the sacred bread. We'll dance a circle nine times nine, and burn the candles red, oh. Dance around the old black stone in a grove so shady. Tony Arthur is best known as the singing host on the English children's program Play School. But just a couple years prior to that, she and her husband Dave released an album of traditional folk songs with Supernatural Bent under the tutelage of, you guessed it, King Wiccan Alex Sanders. Dave and Tony were diligent students of the British folk tradition studying songs and dances of the bygone era when they fell in with Sanders, who helped them embrace the country's pagan ancestry and the Wiccan religion. The album Harkens to the Witch's Rune illuminates the strange and dark roots of the folk ballads, especially in songs like Alison Gross, which is a cautionary tale about being seduced by a witch while riding your horse through the woods. Perfect for a children's program. With a band name like Mandy Morton and Spriggans, you'd imagine H.R. Puffin stuff like Kids Show. Starting as a Steel Eye Span clone, the group emerged in the later 70s as one of the most interesting acts in the sea of bland folk rock, with songs about black magic and war. The band is sometimes considered a precursor to the dark wave movement. Here is a track from their album Magic Lady called Witchfinder. Shall we build a scaffold to stretch their necks until they die? Shall we build a fire up to send them straight to hell? We absolutely mustn't forget this podcast's favorite mail-order mystic, Master Wilburn Burchette, the king of DIY occultism. His trippy guitar and electronic albums would provide a guided psychic meditation course to help listeners find their true unholy potential shackled within their own minds. Also worth the trip, here's some transcendental music for meditation. Back to the harder stuff, as bands followed the lead of Sabbath and started utilizing the images of Satanism and the occult, it didn't really matter what they actually believed. Throw some severed goat's heads, some tall black candles, and a gothic font on the cover, you had yourself a style, and a built-in audience of young rebellious kids. And you had their parents, politicians, and church leaders bellowing about the dangers of your music, which just perpetuated the cycle. 
the more controversy, the more imagery, the more sales, and so on. This eventually hit a breaking point. A cult, fairly or not, was linked with a string of bizarre murders in the late 60s and 70s. Manson, Zodiac, Son of Sam. All of a sudden, parents feared that organized ritualistic killers lurked everywhere. In parks, daycares, at the annual clown convention. Stranger Danger took on a new meaning, and emerging fundamentalist right and conservative Christian organizations fueled the fire. Media took the blame. Television, movies, Dungeons and Dragons, Ouija boards, and especially rock music. They were all seen as the Dark Lord's primary vehicle for recruitment and social destruction. Several now-debunked memoirs detailed horrifying and fake conspiracies of occultist sex abuse and sacrificial murders. This mass hysteria caused people to turn on members of their community, and there are far too many cases of innocent people who are falsely accused of terrible crimes that are akin to the witch trials and McCarthyism in the manner of prejudicial prosecution. All this made it legitimately dangerous to your freedom to be an open practitioner of the occult and Wiccan in the 80s and 90s. Music of the occult was pushed back into the underground, while more acceptable forms of horror like slasher flicks and Stephen King took the throne of the mediums that would reach the darkest depths. After the satanic panic, the impact and danger of occult in mainstream rock and roll was pretty much neutered. Vincent Price was now John Lovitz in a devil costume, speaking of neutered. Charlie Manson was now Marshall Applewhite. The Wicked Witch of the West was now Bette Midler. Sure, Metal's modus operandi still relied heavily on diabolical design, which resulted in plenty of lost lives, burnt Norwegian churches, and face-melting solos. But even that seemed sort of reductionist at this point. Rock was still expected to be sinful, but in an outrageous and decadent sense, not in a truly sinister and damning manner. Our society became numb to outrage and dismissive of the unexplained. We get our cheap thrills from television and movies, mostly through predictable quick-jump scares and emotional, controlling soundtracks. Newer bands like Ghost, Woodland Rites, and Devil's Blood carry the aesthetic strongly, but seem to be more dedicated to the idea of appearing ominous rather than actually being evil. If their fans are becoming their followers, then it may not matter much to them anyway. And maybe it's the technology and access that kills the allure for newer bands. It's hard to seem like a minion of Mephistopheles when you post a picture of yourself drinking a frappuccino. Still, there are those pioneers finding ways to integrate the insidious in their music. The indescribable singer-composer Diamande Gallus released a record called The Litanies of Satan that sounds as harrowing as the exorcism tapes. <laughs> Avant-garde composer John Zorn had an entire creepy record dedicated to the works of Aleister Crowley and Kenneth Anger called IAO, Music in the Sacred Light. Nice lullaby music.
Post-punkers like Peorge, Genesis's Psychic TV, Coil, and Current 93 have carved out a small niche to include some genuine occultish sounds in their music. The twisted wings and clouds unfold the great gate through fell makes darkened shadows over pointed spires. Little children point and sing, little children run and dance. Over there, the setting sun, over there, the setting sun. Hail even newer pop icons like the prophesied starman Kanye West, the Lou Reed murdering Lady Gaga, and the Illuminati lizard man Jay-Z reportedly bow a knee to the legacy of the Grandmaster of the Ordo Templi Orientis. Michael Esposito is a paranormal investigator who has made some fascinating experimental music with his captured EVP. In particular, his work with Carl Michael von Hauswolf, it's a scary name, called The Ghost of Effingham, which uses wax cylinders in an attempt to capture the sounds of other worlds, in much the same way Edison did in the 20s. It is, well, totally haunting. Looking for something a little campier? Check out the Satanic Sweethearts Twin Temple with their damnable doo-wop that basically sounds like resurrected Amy Winehouse doing Screaming Jay Hawking songs. It's cloven-footedly catchy. Well, please will meet you. Satan's my name. I can make you sin. I can make you feel pain. I can twist. I can make you seduce me. Down even darker paths are Nazi Satanists, bunch of fun guys, like MMP Temple, who use cassette-only dark ambient drone music to infiltrate the underground scene with their garbage ideologies. It's double the ghoul. And there's a horde of horrible culty occult practitioners who make equally atrocious music like Dragon Rogue, The Process Church, The Apostles of Ignominy, and Radio Werewolf. Maybe none more terrifying than Reverend John Ollie of the Church of You-Know-Who with his Luciferian Lounge. Brace yourself for the voice of pure evil. That old black magic has me in its spell That old black magic that you weave so well Those icy fingers up and down my spine Same old witchcraft when your eyes meet mine I bet Sammy Davis Jr.'s eye is rolling in the back of his head like it was a miniature Linda Blair. Occult and paranormal music has struggled to remain relevant to the mainstream like it has been for most of the last 150 years. Humans will always be drawn toward the darkness. Paranormal recordings and occult music enthrall us not because they communicate with the dead or supernatural, 
but they affirm our intuition that maybe nothing ever dies and that revenge might be possible even in the afterlife. Isn't that the appeal of keeping any record? To spin in an eternal groove? Well, we want to mention a couple resources that helped us, especially with the first part of the episode where we were talking about paranormal sounds. There's a record called Medium, Paranormal Field Recordings and Compositions, 1901 to 2017. And that's uh, from an exhibit at the Zuckerberg Museum of Art, which was curated by artist Ben Cole and has all sorts of really cool paranormal phenomenon recorded. And it kind of mixes it with music, too. So that's an excellent record if you can manage to get yourself a copy, which is not easy because we tried. UbuWeb had a page called Occult Voices, Paranormal Music, Recordings of Unseen Intelligences, 1905 to 2007, that was um, put on their website from... Supposé records, and most all the sounds that you heard are from that archive, and it is terrifying and amazing. Yeah, it's hard to make it through very much of any one track. There's some really beautiful things, and there are some things that are just, they're whatever they are, supernatural or not, they are crazy and they will make you shit your knickers. And we want to thank uh, Micah from Micah and the Music of Mind Control. He gave us some good ideas and pointed us in the direction of a few things. So he's kind of the uh, the dark master of this sort of stuff. So uh, <laughs> definitely listen to his uh, his show, uh, Micah and the Music of Mind Control. It's on WFMU, um, and you can check it out online. I think it's every Tuesday evening. So look that up. If you're into this sort of stuff, you'll definitely love that show. I know we do, and we Appreciate Micah, and he's he's been, helped us with episodes in the past, so hopefully we'll continue to in the future. All right. Are you ready to play some songs now? Yep. I sure am. I'll never be a girl, you'll never be a The first track for this episode is going to be by a band called Lucifer, and the song is called Exorcism.
Alright, that was Lucifer with their song Exorcism off of the album Black Mass from 1971. Lucifer is actually Mort Garson, who we have talked about in another episode on our records about keeping plants alive, music for plants. Mm -hmm. He is a Moog pioneer. The concept of this album was basically the Moog playing sinister songs, almost like horror film songs, and the only other horror Moog albums were two albums by Ruth White, who we had talked about also on another episode where we talked about her albums Seven Trumps from the Tarot Cards and Pinions and Flowers of Evil, also two occult albums. But we didn't bring that up much because, well, we talked a lot about Ruth White and how awesome she is in another episode. So those were the two people that were doing the, the occult Moog stuff. So Mort Garson had been doing some interesting, interesting records. He did one that was The Wizard of Oz, basically, a takeoff on that. He did 12 albums, one for each sign of the Zodiac. He did one on hair. And then all of a sudden in 1971, he does this Black Mass record, and and he used the name Lucifer instead of Mort Garson. I don't think he used Mort Garson very much on, on much of anything. But it's really dark and menacing and it's it's pretty cool. It's one of my favorites. I actually listen to it fairly regularly. I got it after we talked about more Carson on that plant episode, and I love it. It's a very strange album, but it's really good. And then four years later, Mark Garson released an album in 1975 called Unexplained Electronic Musical Impressions of the Occult. This album is by, instead of Lucifer, now it's Ataraxia, which actually means a spiritual balance, the synonym of a state of perfection that is not possible to be reached by human beings entirely. Ataraxia becomes a state of tension, and we try to open our minds to be receptive and perceptive towards the occurrings of life. It is similar to Black Mass, but it's also a little bit more melodic in ways. I don't think it's quite as dark it's more upbeat occult. It's also great, and anything you can find by Mort Garson is worth having. These two albums, along with, I think, one other one of Outtakes, are being reissued by the same label. Is it Sacred Bones? Sacred Bones, yep. In November, I think at the very beginning of November. Yeah, I've got both those, oh, actually all three of those on pre-order. Pretty excited about that. All right. As we talked about before, I'm going to go ahead and play a Coven song. I'm going to play Black Sabbath. Shadows to figures burn. 
washes them. When good has been twisted, when good has been cured, then love is resisted and blood will be spilled. A cursed your be from toes to eyes. A cursed your be until he dies. Sabbath uh, by Coven. Uh, we talked about it. This track came out a year before Black Sabbath uh, by Black Sabbath on Black Sabbath. And it's just a great song. Uh, we don't need to talk any more about Coven. We covered them. I don't have the original. I have a reissue by Real Gone Music. And it's on fire and brimstone colored vinyl. Which is kind of like a <laughs> pale red and a pale gray. But it looks pretty cool. It's not as <laughs> epic as you might think. But it's uh, the reissue is really cool. It's got the full fold out with the you know the naked sacrifice and stuff like that. So fun record to have, fun record for Halloween time. So now my next song I'm playing sort of fits with the theme, but it is called Wrath Gemma Gemma Ra by a band called Plus. How I tried. To make it seem I never loved her Never cried And told her we could be good friends
All right, that was a band called Plus with a song called Wrath, Gamma Gamma Ra. And that was from 1969 as well and on Probe Records on an album called Seven Deadly Sins. Now, this record was my dad's record. He told me he bought it because it looked really cool. And it does. The cover is just, it's an all-black record with a cutout of a cross and then seven sinister-looking monks at the bottom, and one of them has a demon face. And it's it's a British prog band that didn't do anything else. Um, they just kind of made this one album and, and disappeared. And it was a real early example of like a concept album, almost a rock opera. You know, it was before Jesus Christ Superstar and Tommy. And basically, they made one song for each of the Seven Deadly Sins. Plus, they had like an opening incantation and, and a closing, kind of like it was a mass. So, pretty interesting record. It got no distribution, no advertising, because it was so weird. And it just kind of came and went. And like I said, I only have it because my dad had it in his collection. I took it from him. And it's it's just kind of a, a weird record that I would probably never play. But when we were talking about this, I thought, man, this fits really perfect with that. The album itself was kind of up and down. I really like this song. It's kind of like a proto-punky, glammy song with the hey, 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 hey. But the best part about it is... At the very end, there's about 10 seconds of a solo, and I have no idea whether it's a weirdly distorted guitar, a kazoo, or a baby crying. I really can't tell what it is. It's like the best 10 seconds of of solo I've ever heard. I think it's my new ringtone. Yes, I love it. Anyways, that's plus, and I don't think it's a very expensive record, Seven Deadly Sins, uh, but you know, if you like the song, maybe check it out. All right, the last song for this episode is by Bonnie Stillwater, and the song is called The Devil is People. Do you wonder where you 
started over on my own What can't go bad Something that's already turned Ain't no one sad To see a dead field get burned I'm grateful to the fates That I was born I found a wet pole In early I was surrounded by an animal who sung to me, the devil is people. I never knew a song so true.
Alright, that was Bonnie Stillwater, The Devil is People, and that was actually the Cheech Wizards Hemiolic Shanty at the Edge of the Anthropocene epic. This is a collaboration between Will Oldham and the band Water, W-A-T-T-E-R, who feature Britt Walford from Slint and Zach Riles from Grails. And it's also a collaboration with Stillwater Brewing. So they released this 12-inch. It's one song on each side. Both songs are The Devil's People. One is the B-side, the remix, which is what I just played. This was released in 2015 on April 25th. And the release of it was interesting. They played, the band played one song at like five different bars just in a single day. And then at that bar, they would just, they would go play a song, go to another bar, play a song, and just move along until they hit all five bars and then they were done. Anyway, side B, this mix that you heard is, was remixed by Bundy K. Brown, who was in Bastro and Gaster Del Sol and was with David Grubbs and Jim O'Rourke, and he was one of the founding members of Tortoise for and was in there for mm-hmm. a couple of years. And side A is a is a very dark folk song with mercurial lyrics. And then side B, he takes that and makes it even more unnerving with those just the weird instrumentation and the noises and the just this unsettling tone that he adds into it. I think it's great. This was released on Temporary Residence, and they had a few different versions on uh, released black vinyl, red vinyl, crystal clear vinyl, and blue and white marble vinyl, which is the one that I have. I think that's the one that is still not very expensive, if any of them are. But it's great. Well, it's Will Oldham, so uh, I'm probably going to love it. <laughs> All right. I think now that we've played some music, the only thing to do is settle up on some trivia. All right. I'm going to go ahead and play. Remember, this is 18 different singers or bands singing Ghost. And you got to see how many of them you can catch. All you got to tell me is how many different singers you can pick out of, out of this uh, this haunted house of cacophony. Here you go. Here's another listen. Right, Joe, the people at home have have counted their numbers. They're going to see if they got more than you. How many? How many have you heard? Well, for full transparency, and this is not something I've done before, I went back and I've listened to this three times now. So I listened to it once at the beginning of the show, and now I've listened to it three more times. So cheater. Uh, I I'm just you telling everybody go devil. do that too. I. I would encourage you to because this is really hard. How many misses am I allowed? Like, do I lose at some point, or none. do I just none zero? Well, I okay. mean, you, I, okay. I don't. I mean, I don't know. There's not really rules. You can okay, guess good. as many as you want. I like no rules. You can just I start like... going through. Okay, yeah, I'm of the Aleister Crowley school of uh, podcast trivia, which means <laughs> you could be doing whatever you want while you're guessing your trivia. All right, here we go. Yep, Johnny Cash. Yes. Handsome Family. Yes. Ray Parker Jr. Three. White Stripes. Four. Neutral Milk Hotel. Five. Jason Molina. Six. <sighs> Nick Cave. No. Um, Rush. No. Iron Maiden. 
No. Sort of just guessing at some of these now. Uh, bands that have, or songs that have ghost in them. Psychedelic Furs. No. I thought about putting that one on, but I didn't. Concrete Blonde? Nope. I thought about putting that one on, but I didn't. Bruce Springsteen? Nope. Okay, that's all I had. All right, let me read them off real quick. Johnny Cash, Ghost Riders in the Sky was the first one. The Jam Ghost was the I second one. I was listening ghost. for that the whole time, and I couldn't hear it. He only says ghost really quick. It's, you know. And then you got Handsome Family, My Ghost. Yep. I'm surprised you didn't get this one. Suicide Ghost Rider. I couldn't pick a lot of these out, I think. It's tough. I think it was a little overwhelming. It's That's the idea. That's the idea. Yep. The idea is you're not supposed to get them all. It's just to see how many you can't get. Good job. All right. Richard <laughs> Richard Thompson, Ghost of You Walks. Uh, the Specials, Ghost Town. Patty Smith, Ghost Dance. Magnolia Electric Company, Riding with the Ghost. Gun Club, Ghost on the Highway. You got Ray Parker Jr., Ghostbusters. You missed Tom Waits, Ghost of Saturday Night. I even told you. I thought I wrote it down. I even, we yeah, even you talked did. about you this did. while You we did were, say You but, did. I'll give you credit for that because you did say that. Now we're getting into some of the tougher ones. Uh, Shane McGowan and Sinead O'Connor, Haunted. Oh, shoot. Susie and the Banshees, Ghost and You. White Stripes, Little Ghost, you got that. Fall, The Fall, Ghost in My House. Oh, good one. Neutral Milk Hotel, Ghost, you got that one. Nia Simone, 22nd Century, which is a tough one. I thought you might just get it from the voice. And the last one, which you were taking all sorts of shots, that was King Diamond with Family Ghost. Sounded like Rush to me. Yep. So uh, hopefully everybody out there got a few of those. Yeah, these are intentionally intentionally kind of tough, but I, I think they're kind of fun. I kind of like hearing all the ghost. I've done it with few things, so. All right. Well, that about wraps it up for us. As always, we want to say go out and please support local record stores. Go buy a ticket to an online concert, mail order some vinyl, you know, just do something to support the the music that we love. And we all always want to acknowledge our podcast network, Pantheon. They give us a lot of support. It's a great network of similar-minded podcasts. So if you go to Pantheon, you can find any number of different sort of musical podcasts that you'll probably enjoy if you like ours. Don't forget to vote. Please make sure you do that. I know who uh, Barbara the Grey Witch is voting for. That woman. She's the worst. Find us and contact us on social media. We are on Instagram and Twitter with the handle of Highway Hi-Fi Pod. You can find us on Facebook. You can email us at podcast at gmail.com. If you get a chance, if you like the show, leave us a, a kind review. And we do have on Spotify a Halloween playlist from a few years ago. And we'll probably put some more stuff from here. Just if you want to hear some of the spoken word stuff, the Vincent Price stuff is fun. Um, oh, yeah. Some of the witch records. I think some of that is available on Spotify. So we'll put some of that together and make a playlist on there. Some Gundela. Okay. It's getting late. It's it's well past the witching hour for me. Last cauldron. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we appreciate everybody listening. We really do. And uh, like Joe said, reach out. Let us know what you thought. 
Uh, hopefully everybody doesn't suffer any sort of um, demonic possession from any of the music that we played today. I don't think so, because we've been listening to a lot. And the only thing it's really done is made YouTube send me all sorts of weird advertisements for like new age stuff. Hopefully that won't happen to you. We appreciate you listening, and we will see you next time. Why do I suddenly have a hankering to fuck Rick James? It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.